0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
1: Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Colby Cove. And on today's episode, we have someone who, in his name, is the originator and someone who has um, his hands on a lot of things that have happened in hip-hop, and as we celebrate the 50 years of hip-hop this year on the Backstory Podcast, please welcome Mr. O to the show. What's up, man? I'm chilling. what's good? Your story is so interesting because you have a lot of history in the business, but you have a very unique perspective because you were really a part of the early days in hip-hop and grew up in Brooklyn, just seeing hip-hop being born in New York City, and becoming a rhymer yourself so talk a little bit about just the the early days of hip-hop growing up and your connection to being an mc and your your process to becoming an mc
2: it was a time when the the type of music was new so you know and i was a young kid and i was hearing stuff here and there you know compared to today it was pretty um it was very simple you know simple simple lyrics You know, stuff that, you know, excerpts that were taken from different songs at that time, you know, from old sayings. So everything was basically cliche. It wasn't like how everybody tries to style out now or even, you know, 20, 30 years ago. It was so simple. Also, it was something that was new, you know, like what is it called? You know, so, you know, the names were simplified. You know, you rhyme it to the beat. Before you know the, the uh, term MC came, was you were just rhyming to the beat. Um, a DJ was a DJ, and and it was it was rightfully so because you couldn't really tell the difference between who was a DJ or the MC, because the DJs were doing a lot of the MCing, and that's what it branched from. You know, they took a break and they got some guys who would just be the the MC. And they weren't necessarily rhyming. They were just like controlling the party, you know, all the party, you know, to get the crowd excited. Like the little crowd pleasers, throw your hands in the air, you know, all that type of stuff. Yep. yep. Um, and incidentally, I started rhyming on a dare from my guard brother. And, um, you know, it just went from there. You know, he was impressed. You know, I didn't really care, but he was he was so impressed. And that was the only thing that had an impression on me. And I was like, let me do it some more. You know, let me write another rhyme. You know, after a while I started writing rhymes and the word got out, you know, as it does in the projects. You know, it's like a small town. Everybody finds out, you know, as soon as you go to the bathroom, everybody knows. So, you know, the word got around, you know, I started rhyming, you know, we had Marcy Center. We had one on each side of the projects and, um, You know, I started rolling with, you know, uh, DJs. You know, my first DJ was this guy I went to school with, you know, like a brother from another mother, Uh, my man Steve, you know, may rest in power, along with my guard brother, Eric Oliver. So basically, you know, we started, you know, we started um, KG, uh, DJ Cool KG. He was really the one who spearheaded playing music in the center, you know, like on a Friday so we all started going down there. You know, this is not me centering the story around me because this is how it happened. You know, I became like well known because the word got around. Like, yo, this dude is good. You know, we don't know what he's saying all the time, but he's he's good. And I became an attraction. They used to come to Marcy Center to hear me rhyme. People that I went to school with, you know, in, in um, elementary school that found out I do that, you know, they became fans and it was weird. Well, your style was different though. So you, you talk a little bit about your style of rhyming
1: because at that time you were completely different from any other type of MC. So you definitely would have stood stood out because it was just different. And it was the early days, but what what, what would you coin the style of rhyming that uh, you were doing?
2: Back in the beginning, I have to admit I was rhyming like, Everybody else, because I had to adapt into whatever style I was gonna have. But you know, for the most part, you know, I was rhyming like everybody else, but not like everybody else. I was fortunate enough to be able to insert myself into the skill set and and create something new. You know, because I I always fashion myself regardless of anything to be unique, and I like to be different within you know, I like to be a quiet different, you know, i wear, you know, I'm the guy in the summer, you know, I'm gonna wear t-shirts and jean shorts and some sneakers, but the way I wear it, you know, you may say like, yeah, okay, that's, that's a little different. So he's quiet different, but that was, that was my thing. But when it came to like, cause when I talk about the beginning, you have to understand, I'm talking about the seventies, you know, when I first started rhyming, you know, I first started rhyming, I was, um, I was still 13 years old and at 13, you know, I don't, you know, these kids like they're a little different at 13. I thought I was a grown ass man, you know, and I walked around like that and I, I played the street like that. And that's, that's just how it is. So basically when we talking about this, the style, it was still the late seventies. There was an incident. I was at um, KG's crib. This is cool KG from Marcy, David Gregory. I was at his crib and he's a DJ, obviously. And you know, we we were like, most of the time, we were making like mixtapes. You know, what, what mixtapes are, you know, you you should well know, mixtapes was like really the tapes, like the cassette tapes. And, you know, we were um, we were making tapes. I'd be rhyming for like a half hour, 45 minutes straight and and he's on turntable and he's changing you know he's changing beats and this is all vinyl just pulling it off and putting it back on so this ain't like you know cdj and all that other stuff and we're doing all this live and in the red incident where there's a mistake we just start over and that was something that i don't even recall happening because we i mean we were on our craft it was a craft back then it wasn't you know just to style out and impress people like it is today. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying it was different. So so I was saying this rhyme that I had written and I got to this line and there were too many syllables to fit within a 16th that, you know, as far as the, the time signature, to fit within that line without it overlapping. And I didn't want to overlap it because I was coming back in with more words, like on the one of the next bar so what happened was i doubled it up i said it faster than you know than normal and after we had done the tape and we were listening back kg kept going back to that same part and he was like yo you should do that more and i was like okay you know the same thing that happened when um i was doing I, i started doing it a little more i did listen to him and this was after Jay-Z and I had met, and we started writing stuff together, routines and everything. And you know, when you hear him talk about the, um, you know, banging on the kitchen table with the cereal and the Haagen-Dazs ice cream, you know, us being high on sugar and all that, he, he mentioned the same thing. He was like, yo, you should do that more. And then he started incorporating it more into, you know, into his rhyme style. In 1985, which released in 86 we did a song called hp gets busy and um it was with uh almond joy and easy ld two brothers who were actually kg's cousins from long island arrow and jason ward in an attempt to make this long story a little shorter we had done a song called hp gets busy where jay and i were exhibiting that you know just a little a taste of you know what Today's is, I call, and for years I coined the triplet style. So then Jay-Z had mentioned like later on, this is fast forward to after we came back from from London and, you know, I was opening up for uh, Jody Watley for like five weeks and I was about to start working on my sophomore album. So Jay had mentioned, he was like, we should do a whole song with that style. And I was like... All right. And, and, and it was nothing like to me, it was just, it was just rhyming. It was something I could do. I knew I didn't hear it. I didn't hear anybody else doing it, but I took it for granted. Is that anyway.
1: what where the originator came from? So that style is when you were calling yourself the originator. Was that because of the style?
2: Yeah. And Jay-Z started calling us and that's, and he actually named the song because we were the beginning of that style of rhyme. He said, we the originators. So that was the name of the song. So let's go back a little bit, Jazzo.
1: So you grew up in Marcy Projects. That's where you lived at. And and you're a few years older than Jay-Z. So Jay-Z was sort of like a kid and he kind of connected with you. And just talk a little bit about your early days and meeting him and you know, what was that? What what kind of kid was he in the in the projects and what kind of brought you two
2: together? Well, I was just coming back from dropping out of college in Virginia. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to be an MC. I wanted to be a street guy. So I came back to Brooklyn. I did, you know, I ended up getting, the, you know, just getting a job. You know, I wasn't trying to be the, the type of street dude, you know, that's just running around doing crime or, you know, or, you know, juxing or anything like that. You know, I, just the street, you know, that was the street. I loved. I love being outside. I love being where the action was, you know, just like a lot of us, you know, we, we weren't trying to you know, take nothing from nobody and nothing, but we wasn't letting anybody take anything from us. I'm gangster. I'm not a gangster, but I'm gangster. So I came back to Brooklyn. As soon as I got back, I connected with another brother from another mother. My man Nike from the world famous Mighty Shirt Kings. He was, you know, we we were long time affiliates, long time family, and he was having a conflict. This is what I found out later on. He was having a conversation, some of his neighbors, because you know, uh, Nike lives in the same building that, that Jay grew up in, yep. or lived, and uh, they were arguing about who's the best. These are the type of arguments we had. Like this is like sports talk almost like you know, who's the best in, Yeah, who's the best MC in the projects, right. who's the right. best MC in Best Style, and who's the best in Brooklyn. So they were having one of those conversations and you know, Nike was like you know, like, it like it was two of them besides Nike, and I think they were talking about Jay-Z, who at the time was, like, Shawnee D or something like that. So, you know, they were, you know, so Nike was like, I heard Jazz just came home. Like, I came home from the joint, but I came home from college. He yeah. was like, Jazz is home, the Jazz is better than everybody. And they were like, oh, we're going to see we're going to see you, like, set it up. So that's how me and Jay met. You know, um, so it was
1: almost like a battle. You guys almost had a battle against each other.
2: Yeah, it was set up like a battle. And well, he, was um, like a,
1: he was a kid though. He was like
2: five I was a years kid you. Yeah. But yeah. I, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I mean, looking back, you know, I was a kid. Correct. Myself. But he, you know, he, he was um, I mean, as we all found out, you know, he he was a prodigy with, you know, an extreme amount of raw talent. Yeah. And he was the first, he was the first individual I ever listened to at that point that I felt had what I had because I hadn't heard it.
1: And was he at that moment, like totally memorizing his rhymes and not writing them down? Was he at that
2: level? Oh, no, we wrote, we wrote rhymes. We wrote rhymes. And it was something that I feel both of us had, had always had the intelligence to do but we just didn't do it, you know, because that was the thing. The thing was, that was the modus operandi. Mm -hmm. You come up with a thought, you come up with a concept, you go get a pen and a pad or a piece of paper, anything you could write on, and you write a rhyme. That's what, you know, being an MC was, you know. So um, later on, you know, it became more of a thing, you know, where you do this and you do that, you know. And, And some people just... They went off the top of their head with a lot of stuff. Me, personally, I like to think before I say stuff. So, you know, I was basically, I was the, um, I was to come up with a thought and write it down. And so was he back
1: then. So you guys, as rappers, starting off with, I guess, a battle, you then become friends. Talk about what makes you almost an originator as well was, like, record companies started to, Pay close attention in that time period. It was a very very fertile time for rappers and right. a major company who had not jumped into rap yet, although all these other companies had jumped into rap, signed you to a deal and then say, Hey man, come to London to record the album. So what was that like for you? Like A to sign a deal and what kind of what kind of deal was it? What kind of money did you get? And then you're going to London. That must have been like, you know, like mind blowing for, for a kid from the projects.
2: Yeah, it was it was but i was ready and i also want to mention that jay-z and and me meeting it turned out that it wasn't a battle at all i mean i battled and before i ever met him you know i had battled before and um i didn't get anything out of it because i came into battles already knowing that you know i know it sounds it sounds it is what it is i already went into battles just by knowing or hearing. The individual is like, I'm gonna smash this person. Like, they can't do nothing with me. You know, I don't even have to talk about them. I ain't got to talk about their mother, their sneakers, if they lean in, if they got their last jump shot in them or something. I ain't have to talk about none of that. All I had to do was talk about myself and the way I explain who I am and how great I am. And that's how I did it.
0: McDonald's is not new to chicken.
1: a deal and then they're like hey come to london to record your album you know talk a little bit about what made you want to sign with this company and what kind of deal was it and this was was this your first big payday
2: yeah it was it was two hundred seventy five thousand. and when i saw the contract and i saw the the budgets for each you know because it was originally they signed me for four albums with one irrevocable option to renew. So that technically, that meant five albums if right. everything went the way everybody expected. And that was a good deal. And going to London, it was it was kind of, I felt like that part was kind of corny because, you know, especially around that time, you know, it was 89 and actually it was 88. Hip hop was starting to flourish with that came the advent of a lot of new studios and some of the more established studios catering to um, rap artists. Yeah. So it was a thing. And I was like, why am I going all the way to London? You know, I could do that right here
1: where the magic is happening, where the people are making all this great music.
2: Exactly. And it just so happened that I had done a pre-production on just about all of the tracks on my first album in D studios in which D had never done hip hop. They never had a hip hop session, a hip hop oriented set, none of that yeah. because Doug Grammer and um, Dave, they asked my management. They was like, why does this guy need to rent a drum machine, a MIDI keyboard and a turntable? Cause they didn't even have that available. You know, they were doing like bands and stuff like that. So they didn't even have that available. And, my management was like, we don't know, just get it for them. So that was like my little MIDI setup. You know, it was an MPC-60, Korg M1 keyboard, and a Technique turntable, and I did the rest. It was exciting going to London, but at the same time, I thought it was corny because once I saw those um, dollar figures, you know, I was like, okay, let's go. And so, and so in going to London, you know, I asked Jay. Jay was with it.
1: And Irv Gotti.
2: Yeah, well, we had just we had just met Irv, and at first Irv was reluctant, and we don't talk about that. He was reluctant to go. Obviously, he ended up going, and the reason why he ended up going, and a lot of people don't know, this, so you're getting an exclusive, is that my man KG. I asked him before I was getting ready to, you know, the flights were being set up and everything else. I asked KG. I was like, "Yo, going to London." called this album, you know what I'm saying. I was basically telling them, "Nigga, we made it." Without telling them that, right, you know, I right, right. <laughs> was right. like, Nigga, "We made it. Let's go!" Right. And he was like, "Nah, I see you when you get back." I was like,
1: "Well, you know man. what's interesting, and, and 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 you know, you're not going to say this, but I'll say it. You got probably one of the best deals at that time."
2: Oh man, I had the best deal.
1: At that yeah, time. you had the best deal. Nobody was walking with. Yeah, you. Nah, I ain't
2: got. I won't hide that. I'm, yeah. It's nothing. To yeah. Be ashamed of, and it's nothing to you know. I'm not boasting, I'm telling the truth. Your
1: label was late to the party, so that's a benefit to you because they saw yeah. all the things that were happening. And they was like, Oh, we got to get a rapper, we got to get a rapper, and so you got the, the bigger check in that moment. So, yeah, kind of cool for you to get it. What did, when you got the money, what did you do when you got that check? What was one of the first things you did?
2: Well, I didn't get the check, that was the budget, the
1: budget. So, you so
2: they didn't give me right, they didn't give me yeah. 275 here, do whatever you feel all like right. doing. Right. You know, it didn't work that way. But I had access to it. So we recorded the album, came back. Some of that was attributed to or went to, you know, marketing, all this other stuff. Yep. You know, but I was I was taken care of. You know what I'm saying? I had access. You know, I didn't I didn't even have a car yet. But um, were you still so Mar- was- you still living in Marcy, though, right? For a second. Yeah. For a second, like three, I think like three to four weeks after I came back from London, I moved, you know, being a street dude and understanding what type of uh, business situation I was in. I just thought it better that I not be there. I could have stayed and, and fought all type of wars. And nobody My,
1: really knew what the money you you made yet anyway. So it was good. That, nah, that they no didn't. internet. There was no internet or nobody to say, you know, Jazz just signed a $275,000 deal. So... You um you make the you make the album. And I had had Irv on the podcast last year, and he talked a little bit about that experience, first time going to London, and it makes mm-hmm. more sense now because at that time in New York, everybody was super tribal. So you guys were Brooklyn guys, and he was a Queens guy. So mm-hmm. that, that was like a, that, that didn't really happen that way. Like it was literally everybody stuck stuck to their boroughs. So now it makes sense that the two Brooklyn guys take the Queens guy to London. So you come back and you, and um, the first single that you released from the album is Hawaiian Sophie. We all know it. It was, you know, um, your first hit song. And then you've got Jay-Z on the song. Talk a little bit about that experience of putting your first song out and how it changed your life.
2: First off, uh, I didn't want to put out a song like that. I wanted to put out stuff that was more street. Right. But I was learning the business and what I looked at I saw the um, executives enthusiasm and the AR's enthusiasm with Hawaiian Sophie. You know, there was a novelty song. It have a great look for video, you know, telling the story, vivid colors and all of that stuff, which you ended up seeing. Yep. And so I understood that. So I I took that hit, you know, saying, Look, okay, if y'all gonna put this money behind it and y'all gonna keep liking me and keep giving me this money, that's not something where I'm like, you know, hanging from a roof or jumping off a bridge or some other idiotic stuff that, you know, people, you know, in in some form or fashion have to do to maintain. I'm not doing nothing crazy. I'm just riding the wave. And I made the song. So it's not like it's a song that I was ashamed of. It's just that I would rather have come more street. And that was my thing to be more street. But Every time I opened my mouth, it seemed like it was some R and B or some novelty, you know. In some aspect, it was was an A
1: and R that didn't look like you or me, who thought they knew everything about you know music and you know were making decisions and you know, they didn't know. I mean, that's just the way it is. And then, you know, now you look at it now, artists are way more in tune with what makes sense for them and the labels in most instances Mm -hmm. stay out of the way. So you have your success as an artist and then you go into, you know, record your second album. What was it like for you as just just as an MC in the late 80s as hip hop was really exploding and you trying to find your own lane? Like, what was that like for you?
2: I had no problem with that part. The thing I had a problem with was EMI having the ability because back then, because it was before the internet was strong or before there was really the internet at all, the way we know it, it was difficult dealing with a record company who didn't understand how to market hip hop. Yeah. And all the majors, none of the majors really knew. And that's why like companies like Warner, you know they acquired cold chilling um they acquired tommy boy you know so it's like look yep cbn
1: acquired def jam like they like they was like let's grab the people that know what they're doing and you know we'll put our machine behind them
2: exactly exactly and emi was yet to have any of that low key when emi and capital they had done a couple of separations and coming back together and this one acquired that one, but low key, they were, they were doing the distribution for a lot of West coast stuff,
1: which was just getting started. So it was like literally, yeah, you know, tapping like, into, like, New York was way ahead of the West coast, but there was like, and a lot of those artists were very quirky and, and novelty.
2: Right. And then all, but also, you know, you had, who was that? The NWA was signed to, was it priority?
1: Yeah. Priority. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah capital distributions
1: yeah yeah but they then being, they, but then emi signs gangstar like a little bit what i guess around the time around the same aware. time yeah yeah so that so, mm-hmm. so they were figuring it out but um right they, were sort of a they, had acquired,
2: they had acquired chrysalis
1: chrysalis yeah
2: they were actually signed to chrysalis that was distributed by emi, EMI.
1: yeah mm-hmm. what i learned about you was that you then kind of got more into the production side of hip hop in the early 90s, which I always call that the renaissance period of hip hop. That was a that from, you know, 1990 to 96 was just such an explosive time for East Coast hip hop. Talk uh, about uh, your production side, because you started actually doing demos with artists that are now household names. But you were sort of the, the creative to help put their stuff together. And that, that was uh, the next the next part of your career.
2: The collaborations with Jay-Z, that was the easy part. The difficult part was when when I actually started doing that, I had just come back from Atlanta and it just so happened the first and only person I could call at that time was Jay. I called Jay, I was like, yo man, you know, I'm at the airport, you know, I, I got in a night flight and I didn't even have a plan B, you know, so Jay stopped what he was doing, picked me up at the airport. And, um, from there, you know, I was, I had to get it out the mud. I went to the places that I knew. So it's on a creative level, you know, I started, I went to see uh, Dave and Doug at D and D studios, you know, I was like, Hey, where you been? Blah blah. am blah. not told, you know, I talked to, I sat down a lot more with Doug. And I told Doug, like, yo, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm setting out to do. And a lot of people don't know this, but when I first got back, this was like 93 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were times that I had to walk from, and I have no shame because I, I got a lot of pride, but I have no shame about this. I had to walk from D&D Studios, which was 37th Street, between 8th and 9th in manhattan back to brooklyn over the brooklyn bridge not even over the brooklyn bridge you got to get down from 37th to downtown manhattan
1: right and
2: then and then get to the east side of manhattan and then go across the bridge yeah and then yeah so that was some miles at night late at night yeah like umpteen o'clock in the morning yeah new york was a (laughs) wild place back then man yo and but i mean I wasn't worried about that part. The part I was when I had this, I had this tan bag with about a stack like this of vinyl and in the, in the pouch that was in front of it. I had the, um, I had the little floppy disks, you know what I'm saying? That I put in, you know, the NPC. So that's what I had. And that's what I carried. I put it on my shoulder and I get to it. I get back home and it, it was rough. That was a rough time, man.
1: So talk about the demo. So you go to the studio and then you start working with, I understand you work with the locks, you work with Mary J. Blige. This is before we even knew who these people were.
2: Oh, no, nah. Mar- Mary J. was was established and I didn't work with me. Mar- I, I think I did a, a remix that never released mm-hmm. uh, on Mary, but Mary and I never worked. I, I don't, you know, it's the same thing with girls. Like I don't, I don't claim if I, <laughs> if it ain't happened, I do not claim it. But I ran into, and and shouts to Mary, and shouts to her career. What happened was I would come in contact with so many people because D&D became, and I got to take some credit for that right now. You know, D&D became like the mecca of where you record because there were studios, and I'm not trying to be funny, I'm just being honest, there were studios that had um, more experienced engineers, um, more um, high-tech equipment, you know, that people could go to, but the prices were reasonable at D and D and you get that certain sound, you know, that analog grungy sound. It was, Somebody, perfect. There, was there was an
1: album. They had done an album of D D, um, at some point in the,
2: D and D project. I D&D was on project. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did a yeah. song on there called stone to the bone. So yeah, I ran into the locks out. I met Dave. This is Joaquin and D, uh, rough riders, I met D before I met um, Joaquin and what happened was they had the A room that was like the top, top tier room. They had the B room that um, DJ Premier made famous because that was his favorite room. And they were building another room that they were going to call the D room. And I always wondered like, why won't you just call it the C room? You know, and they like, no, this is the D room. So I worked out a situation that I had, but if nobody booked it in which rarely people booked it because it was still under construction, I could go in there and work out, you know, so I was in there banging out beats and this, that and the other. So incidentally, I started seeing D come in the studio, you know, and I don't know what sessions he was doing, but he heard something that I was doing in, in that room in the, uh, it was like a pre-pro room, pre-production room. He said, man, he was like, yo, that's hot. He was like, Who's that for? And I was like, I'm just making beats. I'm just banging shit out. And he was like, you know, I ain't going to discuss the numbers and all that stuff, but we made an agreement. And so he was like, yo, I got some people coming in. You know, I want to let them hear it. And I guess about five five or six minutes later from us talking about that, Styles P and Sheik Lutz came in the room. And they was listening to it. D was like, yo, yo, say something on that. So they start rhyming. And I was like, okay, okay. And he was like, yo, we ain't gonna be bugging you if um he said he'd be in like 20 minutes. So like a half hour later, they was like, you know, it's cool, like you come in too, woo, woo, woo. And I was like, oh, I don't care. And um Jada came, he was listening to it, he spit on it, and everybody was digging it. And um, long story short, we ended up doing a song called For My Niggas that for the life of me, I can't find the cassette. I can't find the um, two inch, the half inch. I can't find. It. I know somebody got it, and I'm I'm gonna get it. But that's how that's how that started. But the first one was, um, you know, Primo was in there all the time. He was like me, like he, but he was he was actually working on projects. And I'm working on working on the project. And
1: he was cranking out some classic beats in that era too. So we we, we got some gems from Primo during that time.
2: Most definitely, not and just for Gangstar, but just in general, he was he was in general.
1: Pre-beats.
2: Yeah, I love primo beats. Yeah, yeah. So he 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 stepped in a couple of my you know my beat making sessions too, and he was like, "Yo, man, you'll hear about that later when I get him in front of a camera." But um, he was you know he said like, "Yo, I got um, I got this new group, and he wanted to see if they they like this beat that I had." But we did a we ended up doing a song. Called "Forgive My Sins." Mm-hmm. We went on to like doing other things. Um, Primo's management he he started he contacted me, and I started doing uh, songs with other artists, artists from Europe. Just started producing, and that was sort of my resurgence, you know. And you know, Jay heard about it. Jay started listening. We were at. A video shoot with uh sauce money for his project. We were around the um Manhattan Bridge and I was uh, you know, Clark, DJ Clark Kent. Every time he see me, he's like, I know you got something on you. I know you got C D because that was the thing back then. Like, you ain't no real producer. You ain't trying to, you ain't trying to get money, you ain't trying to sell no beats if you don't have your stuff on you on ready you. to Somebody got in New York. You never never know who you cross cross paths with. Exactly. And you could bet that eight times out of ten during your day, if you outside, you're gonna run into people and somebody gonna be looking, especially if they know you got some goods. They you know they're gonna be looking. So he saw me out there and he was like, I know you got something. What you got? So we went in this car and we played this beat in particular. I played him like three or four beats, I think. And um, I played him this one in particular, and it became, in my lifetime, the Big Jazz remix. Because when he hears something, he was like Jay's unofficial A&R around that time. And he was like, yo, jazz got something. So by the time we got around, we ended up around 560 State Street. And um, I was in a car with Jay. He was like, Yo, I want this one. He's like, how does sound to that? And he was saying it's wrong. I was like, that's crazy. Well, and this that's was
1: a cool. time when he was sort of still hustling, though, right? Wasn't he, wasn't he hustling at that time? Man, he ain't going to get me to say nothing like that.
2: If he was, it <laughs> wasn't. All
1: right. So, okay. Right, on the- Clark Kent was working at Atlantic, and mm-hmm. he had Signed Original Flavor, and Jay was on their uh, song. They were, he was on two songs on the Can that I album, Get Open. Can I Get Open, which was really the triplet, uh, was the first time we heard the triplet sound, you know, with that project. And then that song did actually very well across the country. And then he left to you know, really pursue his own thing with Rockefeller. So talk a little bit. So In My Lifetime was the one where they went to, where they went to the Caribbean to film the video on the yacht, right?
2: Yeah, we were actually in St. Thomas, yeah,
1: which was for an artist, and I always I told this to Jay many you know many years ago, you know for an artist that was not signed to a major label, like he was doing major label oh, big. Outlanded. Like, yeah, yeah, it was, and that was you know they wasn't drinking 40s, they was drinking Cristal on a boat. <laughs> and exactly. Nobody, was, nobody ever. All the other rappers were posseed up, uh, with dudes with baggy clothes on. Mm-hmm, you know, right and Tim. Yeah. And he would Jay Z was way ahead. And, and I and I wanted to ask you because, you know, we know he's a mogul, multi-billionaire now. But when I started this podcast three years ago, I started with because I did Jay Z's pretty much I interviewed Jay Z the first ten years of his career, every every project. And when I went back to listen to those interviews, I was like, Bro was always like thinking like a mogul. And when I listened to the other interviews with other artists, a lot of artists was just happy to be signed to a a major company. And he didn't really want that. So talk a little bit about just the independent spirit. You give him his first record, which we all paid attention to because the video got played on the, on the box. And uh, you know, so many people like connected with the video because it looked different. You know, talk about that entrepreneurial spirit and where did that come from?
2: I mean, it, it came from him and it came from, some of the same things that that drive others just it drove him a a lot further, you know because you look at it, you know he had to do without certain things coming up as a kid, and he had to get it on his own. then when you look to the music business when he you know he was looking you know he had linked up we had all linked up with with dane dash yep and um, Sauce was kind of wishy-washy in the middle of like being Dame, committed. Dame was
1: with original flavor, right? That's that's how he connected with it with Dame.
2: Clark Kent introduced us to Dame Dash. Okay. When you look at the dynamics of Jay having music, and at that time Dame was was shopping it. You know, he was shopping his music. People were saying like, "That ain't gonna do it. That ain't gonna hit right." You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's not. It's not that shit basically. You know, we were standing on the sidelines like yo, these things is crazy. Like this it's just, it's this different. is the hottest yeah, it, shit going. Yeah, yeah. I ain't hear nothing hotter than this. Yeah. And you know, they were like, nah. And from that, that's what motivated him, I feel, to be like, Look, we don't need these people. Let's go get it. Let's do it ourselves. Let's it out. So fortunately, um, I think it was um uh, reality records, it could have been, but I think he ended up on profile.
1: All those labels pretty much told him no. And I remember it was payday, wasn't he on payday for like a half a second? That's
2: what it was. It was payday, payday.
1: yeah, it was payday because there was yeah. so many labels oh, like man. that at that time. It was all these <laughs> baby labels at that time, but yeah, so, so it, was, it was in my lifetime. was on payday,
2: right? It yeah. was payday, and uh, Dino DeValle, he was reluctant to sign it and that's no stab against him but he was reluctant to sign it because he had told me that the agenda around that time was to slow down the influx of what they now call east coast rap yeah you know and start looking down south that was the agenda there was plenty of interest you know with jay but they just didn't want they didn't want to sign it Partially because they didn't understand, whatever the reason, I think that was the main motivation for him. Like, look, yo, let's let's grab some bundles and let's do it ourselves. So and then he
1: worked. Then so then he you start working on. He puts out Dead Presidents, which again was way ahead of his time. I mean, it would it definitely was like, what is that when you heard it? And then you worked on Ain't No Nigga, which is really the one song that summer of '96 uh, or spring of '96 that really just was like set it off guy? yeah it set it off and then def jam put that on the nutty professor soundtrack so talk a little bit about ain't no nigga and that and that that classic beat you flipped for for H.O.
2: it was funny that uh and I, I've told this story a few times he came to me and he had the idea you know he had the idea for the sample and he was you know kind of fooling around with the with the hook you know, of course, he didn't know what pitch to, you know, to sing it in and how it was supposed to go. But he, he understood like, yo, it should be like a, a dialogue type of hook, you know, um, male or female back and forth. You know, my main concern was the beat itself. So I went to my drum machine, and he, you know, he told me like, yeah, I know anybody can put this together. You can put it together. And I was like, thanks for the vote of confidence. I don't want to let you down. So I went and I sampled it and I was working, putting the drums on top of it. And it wouldn't go because, you know, the, the sample, um, Seven seven Minutes of Funk, it kind of sped up. You know, being this live music, you don't know when that snare is going to hit. It's not going to hit exact anyway. So,
1: and EPMD used the same sample for that right. big hit uh, way back yeah. in the day it's my thing. Yeah. So we we knew what it was, but you flipped
2: it mm-hmm. and add a little add a little something to it. Yeah. So what I did, I did the opposite. I didn't add anything to it. Uh the engineer that was in the room, we were at D&D, uh karen Walsh, he was like he was like cuz I I was going to end I was going to take a longer time because I still knew how to get the snare on, you know, the the sample snare on top of the sample. You know what I'm saying? I knew how to exactly do that, but he was saying if you're gonna do that, you might as well just leave it alone. I was like, yeah, well, can you EQ it to where it's, you know what I'm saying? He was like, yeah. I was like, okay. So I chopped it up into like five or six pieces, and you know when you hear the intro, I did bomb, ba boom, bomb, bomb, ba bomb, ba bomb, ba bomb, bomb, ba bomb, 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 ba bomb, bomb, ba bomb, Boom, 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 You know, because it, it came in the next one. I couldn't use that intro anymore because when it came back in, if you notice, it doesn't come in on the one like it does with um EPMD joint. I do it like the like how it is on the record. How it goes boom 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 before the one. So that was that was that. And I did that live on the drum machine pads on the NPC. For like five and a half minutes, and that's what you hear when you listen. to Ain't no nigga me going boom, 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 boom. That was it.
0: McDonald's is not new to chicken, so maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the Crispy. juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: So that comes out. And then, you know, in June of 1996, Reasonable Doubt comes out. And it is an instant success uh, globally. What were you thinking when you saw... Because you knew Jay-Z. Again, you guys were kids in the projects not even 10 years earlier right and here you are like on the precipice of a classic debut album which every artist would dream of and at a time in an era where so many artists had that first one was that one you know how did it feel because that's your guy you from marcy you guys rhyme together he worked with you on your first project what did that feel like it was fascinating
2: and it was uh it was great. That's all I could say. Like, And I was proud. I was proud because I was proud of the fact that what I set out to do for myself and for him, that it was coming into play. It was coming into a reality that you can see. And I always said it in interviews as far back as I can remember when they would ask me about Jay-Z, the question that will always come up And it tells you, it gives you a sign of like the mentality of people. They always ask me, why did you help him like that? Why did you do all this that you did? I was like, yo, are you people human or something? That's what I was saying in my head. I was like, that's what we supposed to do. Yeah. When we get, when we get up, you know, we, we bring our people up. Yeah. You know, they coming with us. And you
1: helped him too. You gave him. That trust me, that experience when you got signed to EMI and going to London and being on that album and touring around, that really was an eye-opening experience for him as well. About man, I I really want to get into this. I want to do this. I mean, that that you you offered him that lane. That doesn't really happen for kids in the projects. Like that 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 was a that was a good blessing.
2: It doesn't happen often and, and that doesn't happen often enough. And the times that it does happen, it should be more documented. Yeah. This should be documented more, I should say. It doesn't make sense. I didn't understand the question. I was like, what else am I supposed to do? I'm telling y'all, that's my mans, that's like my younger bro, and right. you ask me why did I help him? It did it just didn't make sense and my answer was always I didn't want him to go through any of the stuff that I had to go through to get exactly. to a particular point. And I got to admit, you know, my to the level that I did get to it was rather easy, but the rigors I had to endure from that time on was was kind of ridiculous because I felt like I didn't get a fair shot late. And then I, I blamed myself later because I felt that I didn't give myself a good enough shot. And I mean, this day and time, I don't think that was true. And it was a time when um, artists weren't, really didn't have a say as far as like you communicated through your management and the management would go to these meetings at the record companies and so on and so forth. It was an unsaid rule. The artist is not permitted in these meetings,
1: which is BS. That's all. That's all.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. So like, even though we had the handle and we knew what it was on the street and what the people wanted and everything else, they didn't see it that way. All the administrative stuff, okay, y'all got that. This is what y'all do. But when it comes to the people and what the people want and our skill set and all these other things, these intangibles that you're not really aware of, y'all just looking at the black and red, it's like, we got this. But they didn't respect that back then. You know, now, you know, record labels are at a point where it's like, we just give the um, artists a whole lot more freedom because they realize like, look, we we don't know that part. You know, let them do it, you know, and then the numbers speak for themselves. You know, these guys doing numbers and girls doing numbers, they like, well, whatever they're doing, whatever they're saying, it's working and it makes our job easier. So, for the
1: next couple albums, you then produce a couple of different songs for Jay Z. Then he comes with his third album, which was, a, you know, the biggest album he's had to date in my lifetime, Volume One, which is kind of named after the first song that you did. And then you do, nigga, what, nigga, who? Yeah, I featured on it. Yeah, if Reasonable Doubt was a massive success, that album was even bigger. That was that's what the album that really made him a global, a global artist at that point.
2: And it boosted Reasonable Doubt.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: Then sure. after that, Reasonable Doubt went like double platinum
1: or something yeah. like that. So then after that, you guys have a bit of a falling out because then he's ascending to a, an unprecedented stature in hip hop that that no one else has ever done, and. Mm-hmm. And then you guys for a while aren't working together. And then you guys come back a couple of years ago after all said and done and you have sort of a public coming together. So talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Like and I've said this before, like, you know, people say like, oh, you know, they talk about it as a beef. I'm not the only one that comes from a place like that. But coming from where I come from, beef is you behind the tree you only got two left in the clip and somebody busting at you. You behind a thin tree. That's beef. What what was going on with us was not a beef. It was um, words passing through people who don't know what's going on. They just want to be, they wanted to be me. They wanted to be the guy that is closest because I, I didn't see our relationship that way because of course it, it wasn't you know but you had people around that they served the function true enough but they just wanted to be the man sitting next to the man yeah and and that's that's where I was but I didn't see myself as that I'm like yo I'm his friend I'm his older brother you know spiritually and that's how it is you know I'm so saying? he need me I'm there when I need him. I I, can, I feel I can depend on him. And that's what it was. But all of this other politics and I don't know, you know, you know how it is. It's just like just like the workplace, you know, people competing and all, you know, just all this ass kissing, ass licking, ring kissing and, and nonsense. And I, I wasn't I didn't want to be a part of it. And that kind of caused me for his sake to just like go somewhere else and, and chill out. You know, I went to sit down somewhere, you know, and do do other things because I wasn't with that. And I knew the only the, the only it was gonna end up with me doing something to somebody. Instead of me having these, having some type of stupid argument with somebody and them feeling that they could say whatever they want to me and then you know I do what I have to do, not out of anger, but out of like, no nah, I gotta discipline this individual. I took the high road, you know, I sort of got persecuted for that because I know a lot of individuals thought, you know, this dude, he being funny. We don't understand him. You know, who would not want to be around during these times. But I think that it was necessary for me to not be around. So when we saw each other again, everything was everything. Yeah. Cause he understands, he understood. I think if he didn't understand at first, he understood after a while, because you know I did plenty of interviews, you know, and people asked me, you know, and they would expect other things. You know, they expect you know me to start barking feeding and feeding the energy, yeah, yeah, yeah. my hands and shit, yeah. all
1: yeah. that shit. So, well, I'm glad yeah. you guys had that moment. I'm glad it was public, and I'm I'm sure you're you're very proud of him. I mean, you know, he's, you know, I I always look at Jay Z from a different perspective because I met him when he was in my lifetime jay-z so i i see i've seen the journey from the beginning so you've seen it right. from b- before that um and yeah. it's also it's, it's it's just a great moment in american history and uh it's good to, to to be able to say hey man we watched it we saw it and for you you really yeah, saw the beginning of it yes yeah, it's,
2: it's there's, there's well, they'll you, never you be American it. history yeah and it gave me a little chill that's because you know because it is is part of american history
1: yeah yeah i mean it is when you think about it yeah jazz i want to thank you for your time man and and glad we had a chance to have this conversation and um you know appreciate you sharing and sharing your insight and thank you for your contribution to this thing that we all eat off of man hip-hop you know we were we were kids loving it and um it, it allowed us to make a living and uh you know you you gave a lot to that moment in time especially when you got signed as a, at a young age but also even contributing to you know some classic albums so thank you man it was great to have this conversation
2: all right thank you appreciate your own time
1: you got it brother coming up on the next backstory podcast producer and artist and legend babyface when you did Sunshine with Jay-Z, but what made you choose to do that song? And that was such a great song, a great hook.
2: To be honest, I wasn't very aware of Jay-Z, but Andre Hurrel kind of said, you know, you need to do this guy a favor. He's gonna be big and just do him a favor. I didn't care if he was going a big Andre told me to do it, so I ended up doing it. And it was it was that simple to be honest.
1: The backstory podcast with Kobe Kolb is an Urban One Incorporated. Reach Media, Pod is good, production. Hosted and executive produced by yours truly, Colby Cole. Edited by Donkus. Follow us on Twitter at Backstory On Instagram, get the Backstory. Senior Director of Podcast Operations, Sierra Reed. For Sales and Corporate Partnerships, Josh Romani and Michelle Marino. Digital Marketing, Walter Gainer, J.R. Smith, and Tim Hall. Thanks again for listening to the Backstory Podcast.